the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this morning. Folks, as usual, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to have some special guests, as Dave always does. We're going to have uh, two congressmen on, uh, Congressman Westerman and Congressman Hill. Uh, Before we get to all that, uh, we are going to start our conversation. We're going to talk about news of the day, and unfortunately, folks, it, it seems to be more of the same. You know, every time I'm hoping for something positive, and I'm not trying to be a pessimist here, uh, and there is positive news to be had, uh, but unfortunately, at the same time, when I look at the news, uh, I see that we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to do to change the focus of Americans and the focus of Arkansans uh, from the destructive policies of the left. And so... Needless to say, as I've told you in the past, I still continue to read the New York Times. It's uh, this, uh, you know, some people say it's a, they have a love-hate relationship. This is pretty much a hate-hate relationship. I'm joking. I don't particularly hate anything. Uh, but the New York Times, unfortunately, has gone off the rails in terms of its liberal bias. But we can use that, right? We can use that to talk about topics uh, that are um, uh, important to us and to show the problem with the philosophy going on amongst the left. There's an article in the New York Times, and it says, New York is pushed to stop asking aspiring lawyers about long-ago crimes. So, folks, as you know, I am a law professor. I teach at the UALR, or University of Arkansas Little Rock Bowen School of Law. Uh, My views are my views alone and not necessarily those of the law school or the university. In other words, they don't endorse what I say and they shouldn't endorse what I say because an institution of higher education is made up of a variety of academics. There is no one view. I'll go off on a slight tangent. I love when I hear uh, deans and presidents and whatever the titles are. I'm talking about across the country. I'm not talking about here per se. And they say, well, John Smith is a professor here, and his views don't align with those of the university. Wait, what? Wait, what? How is it that you can say the university has views? Does the Empire State Building have views? The, the university, any university, to be clear, I'm talking generically now, is an amalgam of individuals. How do you amalgamate those views into one view? 
I'm part of the university, right? And I just told you that my views are my views alone. Why don't I just claim that they're the views of the university? Because a majority of people disagree with me, and I don't know if they do or they don't. I'm just asking you, what's the method that we determine the views of a university or of an entity? It's nonsense. And what really happens, folks, and it's really tragic, is that administrators hijack the entities. And this is particularly problematic when it comes to public schools. Because who owns public schools? You do. You do. And at times, administrators hijack it for their own personal political beliefs. And I'll give you an example from a private school, but a private school that I went to. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. It's somewhat deceptive, right? Because you generally think that if a school is named after the state, that's a public school. But it's not necessarily so, and particularly in the Northeast, which is quite old, you know, the oldest part of the country. And so those universities often predate uh, the United States. And that's why they continue to be private universities. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and at their law school, I didn't go there for law school, but at their law school, they have a conservative professor. She has a law degree. She has a medical degree. She's a doctor. I think she went to Yale, which is, needless to say, quite good. Bruce Westerman is coming on the show later. I think he went to Yale. And she is conservative, and she's made conservative comments. And the dean has gone after her like a rabid dog. And the dean has put out statements, her views don't necessarily align, don't align with those of, of the University of Pennsylvania. Wait, what's the views of the University of Pennsylvania? Your views? Because you happen to be a leftist hack? The views of some people on the faculty? Because they're leftist hacks? Even if it's a majority on the faculty? There are no views of an educational institution. The views are the views of the individuals as expressed through the individuals. So if you talk to an administrator here in Arkansas, not only of higher ed, of any place, of a school, of a high school, of a junior high school, uh, a superintendent, well, the views, no, cut them off. Tell them there are no views. Tell them I know these are your views, and I'm not interested in your views, unless you are. And just tell them, well, then tell me your views. But I don't need you to put the imprimatur of the institution ahead of your name to gussy up your personal views. Now that I've gone off on that five-minute tangent, let's come back to this article. <clears throat> this article starts off by saying that there's a fellow, Dylan James, a second-year law student in New York, aspires to fight systemic problems in the legal system. Boy, isn't it great? The article doesn't start out biased yet, does it? Systemic problems in the legal system. Systemic racism. But even if he passes the bar exam after graduation, one part of the state's admission application to become a lawyer could limit his plans, question number 26. James used a gun to steal from an acquaintance during his senior year in high school and spent about three years in a Florida prison for armed robbery. But question 26 asked prospective lawyers to divulge their complete criminal records, part of an effort to block people from the profession who might harm its reputation and the legal system itself. 
look at the language used in this. He uh, used a gun uh, to steal from an acquaintance during his senior year in high school. And then he spent three years in jail for armed robbery. Folks, this wasn't two kids sitting around, and one of them picked up the, the, a gun and said, ha, 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 by the way, give me some bubble gum. The guy went to jail for three years for armed robbery. And these lefties, you know what they're saying? You shouldn't have to disclose that to the bar. You shouldn't have to disclose that when you want to be a lawyer. Wait, what? This is what's so... Not, by the way, it doesn't mean that Dylan James, who went to jail for three years for armed robbery, won't become a lawyer. I can almost guarantee you that he will. That in and of itself, generally, is not a disqualifying um, prior conviction. But they're going to want to hear about it. He's going to have to explain it. And he's also going to have to explain what he's done to reform. Because if you're an armed robber and you haven't shown remorse and you haven't reformed, well, then maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer. So this is what's so remarkable about it. Not that they're concerned, well, we shouldn't be keeping out every criminal. We don't. People with convictions routinely become lawyers. But the notion that you can't ask about it at all means if the guy's a murderer, if the guy is a serial murderer, and he just got out of jail for serial murder, you can't even ask about that. Does that make sense to you? Does that seem logical? And let's talk about what's going on here. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to eliminate just asking the question? Well, you see, Rob, if you ask the question, then you get the answer, and you might have to consider the answer. That's right. That's right, you do. You might have to consider the answer. You might actually have to do your job and consider whether this guy is a murderer, an armed robber, and how that will play out in terms of him becoming a lawyer. What is underlying all of this? Why would the left start to support this kind of notion? Well, I think there's two reasons. One reason is they don't believe in the criminal justice system in general. So if someone's convicted, well, they may have done it, they may not have done it. No, no. I'm not saying there aren't innocent people caught up in the criminal justice system. There are. What I'm saying is, overwhelmingly, the people caught up in the criminal justice system are guilty. That doesn't mean you don't look for the mistakes. And frankly, we don't do enough to look for the mistakes. On that point, I agree with liberals. Not the left. It's hard to agree with the left. But on that point, I agree with liberals. But the notion that it's all willy-nilly... That is absolute nonsense. That is all make-believe. But that's what we see from the left, right? Because Marxist philosophy is to overturn all institutions, dissipate 
all, all institutions. And that's what we're seeing happening every single day. And what's the other problem? What is the other problem with asking people about prior criminal behavior? Wait for it, folks. Should we take a break, Heidi, now? Yeah, let's take a break. Stay tuned through these messages, and I'll tell you the other part. This is Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Stein McFilling in for Dave this morning, and we are having a discussion about a proposal in New York to eliminate, and these notions uh, transverse across states, to eliminate a question on the bar application for those who go to law school as to whether they have any prior convictions. And, And I told you before the break, there are two reasons for this proposal in my mind. One is this leftist notion that, well, you see, the criminal justice is entirely corrupt and therefore conviction uh, or no conviction, what's the difference? Right? We can barely count the legitimacy of a conviction, says the left. Of course, I don't agree with that. I think that mistakes are made and we need to be more vigilant than we are, frankly, about mistakes in the criminal justice system. But nonetheless, overwhelmingly, the people who are convicted are guilty. And as a consequence, someone applies to be a lawyer. The bar, the group that considers whether to allow you to be a lawyer, is entitled to know whether you committed a crime and went to jail. And you're entitled to give an explanation. And typically, that prior crime will not prevent you from becoming a lawyer. But these lefties want to remove that analysis entirely. And here's the second reason. And this is the key in today's society, I think, to what's going on. It's race-based. It's race-based. Here's what the article says. In New York, black and Latino people are disproportionately likely to have prior arrests or convictions. And the State Bar Association has said it means that question number 26 could have a chilling effect on representation. On representation? I guess what they mean by that is representation of black and Latinos in the practice of law. Yeah, took me a second to to follow that statement. Well, yes. If more people have criminal backgrounds in a particular group... And maybe some of those criminal backgrounds will be seen as disqualifying to practice law. Then it will have some slight effect on the percentage of that group that becomes lawyers. That's a, that's a true statement. But the problem isn't at the bar level, considering whether someone has a conviction. The problem is that different groups have different levels of convictions, and that puts them at times out of meeting the standards to become certain things like lawyers. Same thing, by the way, with police officers. You think if you're a repeat murderer, you're going to get a job as a police officer, even if you score well on the test? I don't think so. I hope not, frankly. Well, if there's a, according to the article, in in New York, black and Latino people are disproportionately likely to have prior arrests or convictions. So will that affect black 
and Latino applicants to become police? Will that affect their representation in the police? Potentially, albeit marginally, but potentially, yes. Does that mean we don't ask that question? To the left, sadly, the answer is yes. Let's think about that for a moment, folks. To the left, if something results in a different outcome for a different group, well, that factor, that which creates a different outcome for a different group, is inherently racist. There's a famous author, Ibram X. Kendi, who makes his claim. If you do something that produces different outcomes for different groups, by the way, uh, you know, a lot of professional sports have different uh, outcomes for different groups, but not in the way the left uh, talks about. If you have different outcomes for different groups, that's racist, says the left. That's racist, says Ibram X. Kendi. So if you have different inputs that produce different outputs, the output is still racist. Different input. Different populations have different incarceration rates, uh, conviction rates, arrest rates. Then you have different outputs. More people with more, one group that has more convictions, criminal convictions, is likely to have at least uh, some difference in the number of people that become lawyers, the number of people that become cops, because some, some could be screened out for those prior criminal convictions compared to a group with fewer criminal convictions, and therefore, while some of them will be screened out, likely a fewer number. Likely. A smaller number. That's racist, says the left. This is the kind of nonsense that you and I deal with every day. That because there are different outcomes, and like I said, by the way, apparently according to the left, you're not allowed to point this out because that don't count, but there are different outputs in terms of professional sports. There's... There's roughly 13% African-Americans in this country, but I don't know, a professional base, uh, no, baseball, I think, is predominantly white. Professional basketball is predominantly black. Well, that's disproportionate against whites, isn't it? Isn't that an improper outcome? I don't think so, by the way. Not at all. You know why? Because I don't care what color the applicant is. They come in, they compete, and the best players get contracts. That's how it works. Merit. Merit works. Yeah, so, for whatever the reasons are, and we can go through them perhaps, but whatever the reasons are, there's a disproportionate number of African Americans. Is that a complaint? Not at all. Not at all. And, of course, we shouldn't have barriers. But remember, we're all so stubborn racism. The barriers that have had existed for a long time, mind you, are not there now. People are not finding systemic racism when they apply to universities. They're not finding systemic racism when they apply to jobs. 
So this notion that they are, and you can read this fellow John McWhorter in the New York Times as well, by the way, who points this out. This claim that currently minorities in applying for higher education, applying for jobs, are facing systemic racism, that's just false. They repeat it over and over again. It's, it's a mantra for the left. They typically have no idea what they're even talking about. Oh, we're going to deal with systemic racism. What's that mean? Well, everything's right. No. No, that's all wrong. The words are wrong. The application is wrong. Everything about it is wrong. Are there racists? Of course there are racists in this country. And there always will be, by the way. But is there, is there such widespread racism that we need to do the things the left is calling for? Like not considering at all whether someone was convicted of a brutal crime in their application to be a law enforcement officer, in their application to be an officer of the court, that is a lawyer. That's what I'm talking about. The left has so overdone what they do, they're a caricature. It's a cartoon when you talk to people on the left. Where are you going to get the real news? Where are you going to get the real information? Well, here. Places like this. Here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Here on the Dave Ellswick Show. We tell you the real truth. We don't gussy it up. We don't make it up because we base it on outcomes. No. Different people have different outcomes. But we, our goal is equality of opportunity. And in our country, as a general matter, we have Exactly that. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this morning. We're going to move on to another topic for this half hour. And then remember, the next hour, we're going to have two special guests that Dave typically has on. Congressman Bruce Westerman and Congressman French Hill. So we'll have some good conversations with them. Before then, I want to talk about what's going on with Joe Biden's attempt at a big giveaway to pay off the student loans of those who can't or won't or don't want to. And it's really, it's really remarkable just bribe to voters by Biden to try to get, to try to win the next election. But it's also more broadly a problem, right? Because you and I are paying for this. I had enormous student loans, by the way. I paid every penny back. Some of it early, in fact. Here's a guest essay from our favorite newspaper, the New York Times. And the title is Debtors Unite. You have nothing to lose but your shame. Even the language is Marxist, right? Unite! Workers unite! That was the Marxist phrase. Debtors unite! They don't hide it at all. So... This opinion piece starts. Conversations about debt are never purely about economics. They are always about power, morality, and shame. Power. Marxism. Marxism says everything translates to power. Economics translates to power. This is pure Marxism. And it's pure mainstream when you get to the mainstream press. 
The debate over President Biden's student loan relief plan is no exception, says the article. Immediately after the initiative was announced, opponents of debt cancellation began denouncing slacker baristas, overeducated Ivy League lawyers. That's me, folks! And impractical lesbian dance theory majors. Immune to accusations of hypocrisy, Republican members of Congress who had received hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars in federal relief, castigated student debtors who might receive ten to 20000 in aid. By the way, the, the Republican members of Congress, they got that pay, payroll protection plan money, the PPP, which was a nightmare. And the fact they got it or anybody else got it and the amounts that they got it was a joke, was a huge giveaway. And some estimates have that a majority of the money was obtained through fraud. Billions of dollars just given away. Where's that money come from? Your pocket. That's where it comes from. Your pocket. It was a stark reminder that shame, like wealth, is not evenly distributed in our society, says the article. For working class people, insolvency is often seen as a sign of uh, prof- profligacy, takes a moment, and personal irresponsibility. While large corporations and the wealthy routinely walk away from their obligations or are celebrated as savvy for doing so. Donald Trump can boastfully call himself the king of debt for a string of strategic bankruptcies the average debtor would never dare. I don't know about that. I think most people think that whether a corporation does it or whether an individual does it, that is files for bank, bankruptcy, that they are avoiding their legal, legal debts through a legal process. Debts are first and foremost financial burdens, but most people in arrears must shoulder a, bo- a, a, a boulder of shame as well. That's just not right. I remember when I was a kid... And somehow I got to talking with my father about a mortgage on the house, on his house, on our house. And I said, well, when I grow up, I'm going to buy a house outright. And my dad giggled, correctly so, by the way. He goes, well, it would be great if you could buy a house outright. I didn't take a mortgage because I wanted a mortgage. I took a mortgage because I wanted a house. And I said, well, why can't I just save the money? He said, you can. And then he explained to me how a mortgage works. He goes... See, the way the mortgage works is they give you the money up front, you give it to the person you're buying the house from, and then you pay back, they being the bank, and then you pay back the bank every month a little bit at a time for 30 years out of your paycheck, out of your income. You don't have the money hoarded in a mattress. You pay it as it comes in. You pay a portion out to the bank. He said, so the alternative is flipping that order on its head. You can... Collect all that money, put in your mattress, put it in the bank, and 30 years later, you'll have that money. Actually, probably a little bit less because you don't have to save the interest and you'll get interest payments. So 15 to 20 years later, you'll have that money and you could buy the house outright. So he said, if you want to wait an additional 15 to 20 years to buy the house, don't take a mortgage. I said, I don't want to do that. He said, that's right, you don't. That's right, you don't. And that's why there's nothing wrong with a mortgage. And that was the notion that he conveyed to me. There was never any shame in debt. He conveyed the absolutely correct notion that that kind of debt is perfectly appropriate. 
it's something that you should engage in unless you happen to be independently wealthy. And needless to say, we were not. So there's nothing shameful about debt at all. There is something shameful about running up a huge amount of debt, particularly on frivolous items, and then not paying it. Yes, I do think there's something shameful about that. And sometimes people do that and file for bankruptcy and get relieved of that debt. And the law allows for that. And that's, you know, they still carry a burden in those circumstances. But simply having debt being a burden in terms of shamefulness, nonsense, absolute nonsense. But this is the kind of fiction that the left creates. The piece goes on. The mass cancellation of federal student loans will not only remove a crushing economic weight for tens of millions of people. Okay. Is it a crushing economic weight on that number of people? I don't know the answer to that question. But the fact that they have debt doesn't translate to a crushing economic debt. A crushing economic weight. It will lift a significant emotional one too. I had no emotional problem having rather large student loans, folks. I was I was going to say happy to have them. Happy might be an overstatement. I was happy to have them because it meant I got the education that I wanted to get. So it was a necessary factor for me to get what I was looking to get. I was very happy to have gotten that education. So yeah, I was perfectly content having accumulated that debt for that purpose. But no one likes to have the debt versus, to be clear, not having the debt. But having the debt wasn't a problem, and I paid it off. And like I said, I happened to pay off some of it early. I was lucky to. Some people can't. I understand that. This psychological shift could in turn have further political implications by emboldening emboldening those who find their obligations overwhelming to engage in collective action aimed at winning more relief and changing the policies that make indebtedness so pervasive. Oh, so you see, when we forgive, I love the word forgive, by the way, when we pay back someone else's debt for them, That's going to make them vote in more politicians that are going to vote for more policies that allow for paying back uh, their debts, other debts as well. How long do you think that's going to last? How long did that last in Venezuela? That's the kind of nonsense that just disappears, right? I'm going to give you a little economics lesson. Heidi, should we take a break now? We're going to take a break now, and I'm going to give you an early morning economics lesson after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Folks, we've gone about mm, 13 minutes or so before the break of the hour, and after that, we're going to have two wonderful guests. We're going to have two of the four congressmen from the state of Arkansas individually on the show. That's one of the values that you get, I mean this sincerely, from listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Nowhere else in the state do you get that kind of power in terms of communication with your elected officials. I told you before the break, I'm going to give you a little economics lesson. And uh, before you change the station, before you turn the radio off, uh, it's going to be enjoyable. We're talking about this so-called debt forgiveness. Of course, there's nothing forgiving about it. 
If you have a debt, there are two ways that that debt can be paid off if you don't pay it off. So in other words, there are three ways a debt gets paid off. You pay it off, you take out the debt, you pay it off. You take a mortgage, you pay your mortgage. By the way, I I guarantee you that virtually everyone listening to this show this morning has experienced that. They took a loan on a car, they took a loan on a truck, they took a loan for school, they took a loan uh, on the house. We call the last one a mortgage, but it's just a loan, right? It's just mortgage tends to refer to buying real property. We've all done it. I've done it. And it's a perfectly rational thing to do. Why? Because as I discussed before the break, it allows you to get what you're looking to get now versus getting it when you're 60 years old and have saved all the money. And at that point, it's a little late in the day to get whatever you're looking to get. So it's perfectly rational on your end to take the loan. Well, why does the entity lend you the money? Because they get interest. They give you $10 now and you give them $12 back, as an example. So their money grows. Same when you put your money in the bank. You put your money in the bank and it earns interest. You put $10 in now and you get $11 back. That's why you put it in the bank. By the way, that's how loans work. You put $10 in the bank. They give you $11, they take your $10, you might not know this, and they lend it out to that other guy who gives them $12. So they pay you 11 they get 12 they keep the one. They're the middleman. Basically, you're giving a loan to other people. Remember that. Remember that. So what happens when we forgive debt? Well, what does it mean to forgive debt? We could tell the lender, you're stuck with the debt. So that means the bank is stuck with the debt. Wait a second, I just lent out $10 to this guy and I'm supposed to get 12 back, give 11 to the depositor and keep one. Now I can't do that. So guess what? When you go to the bank and you try to put your money in the bank to get some interest, they say, well, we can't do it. Because we used to give out loans to pay you interest, and now we're not getting paid back on the loans, so we ain't going to pay you interest. So the banking system collapses. Oh, well, that's not good, right? What's the alternative? Have other people pay back the bank, so the bank still gets paid back, meaning have the government pay it back. That's what this so-called debt forgiveness regarding student loans is about. Have other people pay it back. Okay. So collect tax dollars and pay the bank back. Banks are okay with that. For now, for a little while, until you run out of money. Right? That's what happened in Venezuela. And that's the old line that Dave and I often use on this show, which is socialism is great until you run out of other people's money to spend. Then you're going to run out of money. You know, it's like that old joke where a guy buys a pig and then sells it to his friend for $5 more. So he makes $5. And half a year later, the second guy sells it back to the first guy for an additional $5. So he makes $5 more. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And one day, six months in, one guy says, you know, it's time to sell the pig. And the other guy goes, no, no, I can't. I ate it. He goes, we were getting rich off that pig. And of course, nobody was getting rich off that pig. They were just transferring the pig back and forth and putting money in each other's pocket. But eventually... They're going to run out of money. So that's really the tragedy that we're seeing here. A failure to understand 
the most basic of basic economics. The reason we have debt is to allow people to make choices now that they could not otherwise make, that they could not otherwise afford. And guess what, folks? Uh, Rich people get to make more choices than uh, poor people. And I grew up in a working class, lower middle class neighborhood. We were not rich at all. And I'm sure all of us would have loved to be rich compared to poor. We weren't poor. And by the way, I see no shame in that fact if we were. But I'm trying not to claim, as the left now does, this new mantle of burden that they try to wear as a badge. No, I don't think we were poor, but we were lower middle class. Meaning, we had a roof over our head. Sometimes it literally leaked, but we had a roof. And we always had food. There was never a time we didn't have food because we couldn't afford to buy food. That puts us above some people in terms of wealth, not in terms of morality, let's be clear. So that was good. But every winter, my sister and I, I have a twin sister, come downstairs, getting ready to go to school, and we go into the kitchen because our mother would make us something to eat, and the oven door was open and on. The oven was on. It's electric, not gas. Because you couldn't heat the house. There was The house was so poorly made that you couldn't heat the house in the winter just based on the furnace. The boiler, actually. So, my mother turned on the oven and heated the kitchen with the oven. Terribly inefficient, but at that time, the best she could come up with. So, that's not rich, Right? And we went to public school, and then we went to college. And the public school was okay, it wasn't great, it wasn't terrible. Could have been better, could have been worse. But if we eliminate this notion of debt, you know what happens? Nobody buys a car, nobody buys a home, nobody goes to college, unless you're rich. So that's ironically what the left says. But you see, they have an answer to that. No, no, no. You see, you rich people, you rich people can't have all that money, so we're going to take it away from you. Okay. Okay, that'll work for a little while. Right? If you take the money away from the rich, you steal from the rich, you do a Robin Hood. Yeah, there's going to be some money to buy stuff. Right? So you steal all from the all that money from the rich. How long does that last you? Not long, by the way, is the answer. And then what happens? Well, we're just going to take it from the rich again. Wait. <laughs> If you haven't killed them, by the way. But if if the rich are still around, you think they're going to continue to do what they did to earn the money knowing you're going to steal it from them? Well, no. They're going to leave or they're going to stop earning the money. They're going to hide the money. You're not going to get any money from the rich if you constantly steal from the rich. Why? Because what's their incentive to continue to earn money? So that's just silly. There's nothing shameful about debt, contrary to what this leftist article claims. There's nothing wrong with debt, contrary to what this leftist article claims. You can't simply forgive debt and think you can repeatedly do that and have an economic system that works. That's nonsense. Debt is a vehicle. Debt is a choice. And it's a choice for those who don't have independent wealth. 
which is the overwhelming majority of us, including me. And that's fine. I've had debt throughout my life, happily. If I buy a car on a loan, buy a home on a loan, took out student loans I told you about, so what? No shame. I'm pleased to do it. Now, if you take out an enormous amount of debt buying, um, I don't know, frivolous items, and then you don't pay it back, and then you file for bankruptcy, is there some imprimatur that goes with that? Perhaps. But that's a different circumstance entirely. And I wish I thought of this on my own, but I've seen several people write this notion already. We're forgiving student debt for people who went at that article, says, to various schools, including Ivy League schools and people with good jobs, just as long as they're below some income of something like 100 plus grand a year, a lot of money, if you ask me. But no one's even talking about forgiving medical debt. Now, if I had to forgive a debt, I think a medical debt is something that would strike me as more important because there's no choice there. If you have a medical debt, it's because you got sick, right? You don't have medical debt for plastic cosmetic surgery. But why, why isn't Biden talking about that? And I'll tell you why he's not talking about that. Because who has medical debt? Generally older folks. And generally older folks vote for Republicans. And who has student loan debt? Loan debt, Young folks, some of whom don't even vote. And if you forgive their debt, you're going to sweep them all up into the Democratic Party. And that's the true goal of this proposal. So I hear the music in the background, Heidi. Am I right? Is it time to go? We are going to take a break, and we will be back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave, and we're going to go straight to our welcome guest. But I forgot the order of our guests. Is it, uh, uh, we have uh, Congressman French Hill on the line, Heidi reminds me. I apologize, Congressman. Welcome to the show. How are you this morning? Robert, happy week. Hope you had a good Labor Day, great hog victory. Good to hear your voice, and super to be with you. Wonderful. Are you in town or are you in D.C.? I am. Yeah, terrific. I'm in in town and uh, going back to the swamp on Monday. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, get a good shower because once you get back there, it's hard to wash it all off, isn't it? It is, and the boots are getting taller and taller. Indeed, indeed. Let's talk about some stuff. Uh, So, of course, you've followed the news. You follow the news better than me and better than most, no doubt. You're required to. It's part of your job. And we saw Joe Biden come out, you know, accusing MAGA Republicans as basically bringing down this nation. 
And I, I find it somewhat remarkable. Uh, I think, listen, this guy got elected president and I didn't. So maybe I shouldn't be giving out political advice. But it strikes me as a bad idea, uh, much like Hillary did, to be attacking all of these Republicans and otherizing them, to borrow some language of the left, and to, to make this phrase, make America great again, somehow sound in his mind like it's, a, it's an attack word and hardworking Americans think to themselves, make America great again. What, what's wrong with that? So what are your thoughts on the politics and the substance of what Joe Biden is doing in this regard? Well, Biden ran as not Donald Trump. He ran as a guy who'd been in Washington 50 years, who could work with both sides uh, of the aisle on constructive stuff. I'd say that's what his message was in 2020. And what he's done consistently since day one, I mean, day one after the inaugural speech, Mm -hmm. it was all all about uniting, is divide. He's taken the absolute Bernie Sanders, far-left, progressive approach on every legislative item. And then he has absolutely demonized anyone who disagrees with him, including not inviting any members of Congress to any meeting or any work session on any of these topics uh, at the White House. So he has been very divisive and I think it's the opposite of what he promised the American people and it just enhances uh, his dissatisfaction which is why between 33 and 40 percent of the American people are the only ones supporting it. You know you raise such an important point so you're an elected official you need to understand how politics work I remember when I worked in the United States Senate uh, my boss, who was also a staffer, not not the senator, the senator was, needless to say, many steps above uh, me and my boss, um, would say, now, Rob, your job is to give legal advice to the senator, and if there's some political implication, you can mention it, but remember, he's the guy that got elected. He's the expert on politics. You're not the expert on politics. You're the expert on law. So, you know, stay in your lane as a general matter. Well, part of your lane, Congressman, is understanding politics. I'm just an ignorant law professor. What am I missing here? How can he think this is smart politics? And maybe we shouldn't be giving him advice, but I doubt he's listening in in any event. What are your thoughts? Well, the secret to politics is uh, building support, not diminishing your support. And this is what I think uh, Biden has failed to accomplish. He wants to be the next FDR, as Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, promised him. But what he's turning into is a weak imitation of Jimmy Carter in the way he's operated. And you need to build support if you're going to be successful in politics, reach out across the aisle, create strategies. And he's just, as I said, stuck with a Bernie Sanders progressive left agenda, which is not supported by a majority of the American people. Indeed. Indeed. I think your analogy to um, uh, to Jimmy Carter is r- remarkably apt. And of course, we saw Jimmy Carter sort of scold the American people as he wasn't doing well, as if it was their fault. And needless to say, he was a one-term president. 
I can think of no better topic to discuss with you, a former banker, uh, than this so-called debt forgiveness. And of course, you can't see me, but I would be putting air quotes around the term forgiveness uh, when we talk about paying back student loans. So talk to us about this. This seems to me to be a terrible idea. Um, It prioritizes a type of debt that should be lower than certainly other types of debt. And as a general notion, I think people should pay back their debts. I'm not looking to eliminate the notion of bankruptcy, but this is just a, a free ride. What am I missing? Well, you have to go back to the origins. Why do we have $1.7 trillion in student loans foistered on the American people with so much complaint, meaning everyone feels like they've been ripped off by having a chance to borrow to better their future, right? So Mm -hmm. think about that. Why do we have it? We have it because of Barack Obama. We used to go to a bank Mm -hmm. and borrow money to combine with our savings, our family's contributions, and our work to fund college education. Barack Obama ended that. He abolished that. He said, no, the federal government will give you the money to go to college directly. And he said, we won't even underwrite the loans. You can just get the money and pay us back over a long period of time. Why? Because he wanted those fees and interest earned by the U.S. government to pay for Obamacare. Mm. That's why we're in this mess. Mm-hmm. That's why we're in this mess. This is a mess of Obama's creation, and now Biden's trying to clean it up on aisle four by saying, well, this is all horrible. You've been uh, uh, hurt as a family. We want to forgive these loans. Well, who was the person who's the perpetrator? First, the U.S. government. It's a predatory program. Secondly, colleges and universities got in the middle of it to their own benefit by suggesting to students, oh, hey, books, tuition, sure, but you can put your rent in there. You can put your car payment in there, your child care, and the interest will be deferred until you graduate, and then, boom, you can just pay it off. So there's a lack of financial literacy. There's a predatory lending nature of it. It's not underwritten. It can't be discharged in bankruptcy. So if, if Barack Obama... Uh, was a lender, he'd be under investigation by the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for predatory lending practices. Isn't that remarkable? You know, relatedly, and I'm sure you're well aware, but let's share with the audience. When all of these loans started to become more and more available, guess what happened? The cost of tuition went up because the school said, wait a second, you can borrow 15000 instead of ten, twenty instead of fifteen, twenty-five instead of 20 Well, guess what? Our, our, our cost, our price went up, which are made-up prices. They can charge whatever they want. Well, at the same time the federal government was doing this, the state of Arkansas decided in their wisdom to uh, put on the ballot to have a lottery. And so we take money from hardworking families for uh, in a lottery. Many, many people I see buying lottery tickets uh, look like they need to be saving their money for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're buying lottery tickets and sending wealthy middle-class kids to school on a scholarship. So all these things fuel higher tuition. If you subsidize something, you get more of it in economics. And so that's a contributor to higher ed inflation, which over the past 30 years is higher than health care inflation, which is a real shocker for a lot of people. But look, we should be letting people earn 
uh, the payment of this debt, not forgiving it. So if you work for the federal government, you can have your debt re- uh, retired. If you are a doctor in rural Delta, Mississippi Delta, you can have your debt paid off. If you're recruited to some big company because you're a rock star student, let the company pay your debt off. But this idea of forgiving it uh, just seems to me to be unfair to the 87% of Americans that don't have student loan debt or didn't go to college. And 50% of this debt, Robert, is to attend grad school. Yeah. Uh, typically, if you go to grad school, you've got a good-paying profession on the other side of that. Or you've chosen a grad school that really uh, boggles the mind, right? If, if you're going to grad school and you don't have legitimate prospects thereafter, uh, you've made a really big mistake. And this kind of action encourages that kind of bad decision-making every time. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I just uh, I think it's bad all around. It's a bad upfront policy, which I've described the origins of it, and it's certainly bad to forgive it. We should have more creative ways for people to earn their ways to have their uh, debt paid, and we have that in the House of Representatives. I've seen it. I signed up for a bill. Over 300 people co-sponsored it that would allow companies to pay off the debt of, of students that they recruit to their business, their manufacturing company, their company of any kind, and then the company gets to uh, deduct uh, that debt payment as a, um, you know, employee expense, and employment expense, payroll expense, which uh, allows the uh, uh, company a little benefit, but the main benefit goes to recruiting a good, hard-working American to go to work for him. And that, to me, is a more virtuous way of handling this problem. But let's stop digging the hole. Exactly. Rule, rule, rule number one, when you're down in a hole, is throw the shovel out stop digging. Indeed. So Biden has, has absolutely proposed no reforms to the program to keep it from being this bad. That's the crazy thing. If he were a leader president, he would reform the program. Put some underwriting in. Put some financial literacy in. Put some limits on what the money can be used for. But no, he's proposed none of that. Just a, I think, immoral, straight across the board uh, forgiveness that's unfair to people who taxpayers who are paying it, and certainly unfair to people who work their tails off to pay off their loan or didn't take one. Indeed. Speaking of paying bills, we're going to do that right now. We'll keep you on the line, and we'll bring you back in just a moment after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck, filling in for Dave. And on the line, we have Congressman French Hill. Just for a few more minutes, Congressman, thank you so very much uh, for being with us today. And we were talking about this debt forgiveness. And you brought out a very good point that this whole system exists because Obama was looking for a backdoor to finance Obamacare. Do you think that it was also his plan to eventually eliminate, that is Obama's plan, to eliminate the debt of student loans? And I don't know if we can ever know that for sure, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I do think that's a progressive left uh, proposal is that uh, higher education should be free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that all this debt, $1.7 trillion, should just simply be forgiven as if it was uh, just, you know, let's just not worry about it. But, again, I, I just reiterate this point about, well, you got to stop digging the hole. you got to stop digging the hole. How are you going to reform this program? Can we go back to a functioning program that's good for students and good for the lender and good for the 
college, and I don't know the answer to that. Joe Biden's not proposed anything to it. I've offered some ideas this morning, but I think it's a, a just a systemic failure uh, that is also sending the wrong message to students and burdening, burdening students with just extraordinary levels of debt due to lack of financial literacy and lack of proper care on the part of the uh, college or university or online uh, organization. Indeed, and I think you really have this kind of unholy alliance where you have Marxists, and that's what they are. The, the folks on the far left are Marxists, coupled with, as you aptly point out, students who often are financially illiterate, not due to their own fault, but because they're not being taught these things. They're going to college, right? And they're not being taught these very basics. And so they say, well, why don't we just do away with the cost? But of course, those buildings on college campuses don't put themselves up. They don't maintain themselves. The people that occupy those buildings that get paid, professors like me, no less, get paid money to show up. And guess what? We're not going to show up if we're not getting paid. Uh, so there are costs involved and People don't seem to understand that if you forgive the debt, then the money dries up and then there's no money to pay for colleges. And then in the end, there are no colleges. Now, that's the extreme version. But of course, it's a spectrum. And we start to reduce the existence of college because colleges won't take debt or I mean, they'll take the debt if someone else is holding it. But they certainly won't hold the debt because they know it won't get repaid and the banks won't issue the debt. Because they know it won't get repaid. And then the government will say, well, we'll do it the way it's being done now. And you don't have to repay it until, guess what? They run out of money. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is going to be the largest contributor to the budget deficit in the next fiscal year. And it's not even something that the Congress has voted on. Now, think about that. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Uh, we're going to have a deficit probably a trillion and a half dollars next year or maybe a trillion seven, depending on the state of the economy. And 500 billion or so is what uh, many estimate is the first year cost of people accepting the write-off and therefore sticking that cost to the federal government. So that's just... uh, uh, it's unbelievable to me, and I still don't believe it to be, and you, you're the expert. I don't think it's constitutional because I think this far exceeds an Article II executive's ability to faithfully execute and have discretion in that execution. And it's really like the DACA uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. Where President Obama proposed to make 11 million people green card holders. Well, you know, that's just been tied up in courts. People in Congress don't believe that a president has the authority to do that. And so this is a similar case to me. Well, it's, I think you're right on the money, and your insight as a <clears throat> congressman is significant on these points. I, I'm, I'm simply saying, notwithstanding that you're not an attorney, and by the way, thank goodness you're not an attorney. We've got enough attorneys in Congress, thank you very much, and they're mostly liberal. family here. What's that? <laughs> One per family. One per family is more than enough, exactly. Um, and th- thank goodness, uh, but you're, you're right on the money, which is uh, uh, the, the Congress allocates funds. We know that. And so how is it that the president is effectively 
allocating funds. I think what he's doing is unconstitutional. And I think uh, that it, I know it will be challenged. Listen, there's no great insight to that. And I think, and this is just a prediction, and lawyers and elected officials and others do it all the time, and sometimes we're right and sometimes we're not, but I don't think it's going to withstand scrutiny in the end. The problem is, in the meantime, money's going to get shifted around and people Good, hardworking taxpayers are going to be footing that bill. And how do you unscramble that egg? How do you unring that bell? Right, you can stop it from going forward, but it's really hard to unwind it. Boy, do I got a lot of analogies in there. Uh, um, It's really hard to unwind it after the fact. And so he may have achieved his goal, and I think personally most of his goal is about the next election. Get a bunch of young folks who uh, realize that this guy gave him a big check, and some of them probably weren't even voters or considered considering voting until they get this big check. And they say, I'm going to go in and vote for this guy again. So I think it comes back to politics again. What do you think? Yeah, yeah no doubt. I mean, this is, a, this is just trying to buy votes in the fall. It's bad economic policy. It's an immoral macro policy, I think, to suggest that debts don't shouldn't be repaid and then just violate that but this is democratic policy from uh, years and years uh, go by so i don't think anybody's shocked that they're trying to buy votes this fall they did the same thing in arizona by suddenly get interested in fixing the wall at yuma uh, they haven't done squat about border security since joe biden was sworn into office it's gotten worse every single day of his administration and yet they're trying to say, oh, of course we're interested in border security at Yuma, Arizona, because we have a big Senate race in Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> exactly. So uh, anyway, it's all politics, and, and uh, I think American Americans uh, see through that. I think we have about a minute left. Is that right, Heidi? And and uh, you, you raise an important point that we're only going to be able to touch on. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times. I don't know if you were listening in. I, 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 it's a... It's a you know how you have a love-hate relationship? Well, I've got a hate-hate relationship with the New York Times, but I continue to read them. So there's an article, and it says, Biden administration has admitted one million migrants to await hearings. Meaning, not, you, you well know, America admits, I think it's roughly a million people a year legally, right? Because we're a nation of immigrants. According to this, Biden has admitted an additional million people outside the normal immigration program. And the article admits a good portion of them are going to get lost in the system and never show up to court. And even those who do, do so seven years later. What are we doing, Congressman? Yeah, this is just a sign of our broken immigration system, which includes how we admit people seeking asylum. It needs reform. We came very close to getting that passed during the Trump administration. I wish we had. This is one of the key issues that I think is abused in our immigration system. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And as you know, uh, we've spoken uh, personally offline many, many times. As you know, I'm the son of immigrants. I have nothing against immigration, needless to say, but legal immigration. And yes, we also have a system for people who are fleeing. But the system that is designed for people who are fleeing can't be a system that overwhelms everything else that we have. Congressman, as usual, we don't have enough time uh, uh, with you. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so very much for joining us here on the Dave Ellswick Show, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I'm Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. 
Folks, we've got a lot to talk about. We're awaiting a phone call. Uh, in the meantime, I want to talk to you about this comparison that you've heard in the press so many times between Trump and Hillary Clinton and uh, how what happened to Hillary Clinton seems a lot different uh, than what happened to or what, what is happening to President Trump, right? And there's more to it. And what's that more to it? The more to it is that Trump uh, um, is being, uh, uh, that Hillary's lying about what has occurred, had occurred when she was there. But I see that uh, Congressman Westerman is on the line. So let's go to our important caller, um, our important guest. Uh, Bruce, how are you this morning? Great, Robert. Good, good to be with you. Sorry, sorry, Dave's still out, but uh, I know you do a great job filling in for him. Well, it's very kind of you to say. I, I look forward to his return and my ability to enjoy my coffee in greater ease in the mornings. So, in the meantime, uh, are you in town or are you in D.C.? Where are you right now? I'm, I'm in Arkansas. Oh, terrific, so terrific. Don't go back to D.C. until next week, but. Uh, uh, it's good to be able to be back home and spend time out in the district visiting with constituents. Had a big telephone town hall last night that we had good participation on. So uh, ready to get rejuvenated and go back to D.C. and fight the good fight. Wonderful. I, I, I of course, know your district. Your district is very large, as, as all of our four districts are. What town or county do you actually live in? I live in Hot Springs, oh, okay. outside of Hot Springs in Garland County. It was where I was born and raised, and except for moving off to, to college and my first job, I've lived here all my life. Wonderful. I've, of course, been over to Hot Springs. Beautiful. And they, they re- what's that wonderful hotel there, right there at that intersection that they rebuilt or are rebuilding? I can't remember if it's quite finished yet. Yeah, the Arlington Hotel, yeah. they're still working on it. I noticed, uh, I was through there yesterday, my office is just down on Bathhouse Row, and they're still scaffolding up around it, but, uh, uh, you know, it's an old historic hotel, and um, they're doing a lot of work on it, so I look forward to that being completed. Yeah, it's really wonderful. If if you folks haven't been out there to Hot Springs and seen the springs and seen that Arlington Hotel, there's another hotel down the down the way also that is historic. I forget the name. I forgot the name of the first one. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. The architecture, everything. It's just a wonderful uh, place to go. And of course, isn't it Hot Springs that has that fantastic pizza place? Uh, yeah, they got several really good uh, pizza places. Uh, they've got the Luca and That's the one. Box and Rod's Pizza. And, um, um, I don't mean to exclude of any of the others, of course, but I had heard yeah. in particular about DeLuca's. As as you might be able to tell, um, you know, I tell people I'm from northeast Arkansas, very northeast, also known as New York. And uh, so I know a good pizza when I see one. And uh, um, DeLuca's uh, fits the bill. They're apparently opening up a DeLuca's here in Little Rock. So you, you all are going to have a little competition on that front. Uh, anyway, I haven't heard that. Now you got to get to Connecticut if you want really good pizza. Well, it's funny you say that. I know that you went to school in Connecticut, and I went to Connecticut, the place that serves the clam pizza, the famous clam pizza. D- d- does that ring a bell? Uh, yeah, I've never had the clam pizza, but I've I've heard about that. Right. But, uh, you know, up in in New Haven, where they claim they invented pizza, you've got. Uh, um, 
some pretty famous pizza places up there. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Well, of course, being a New Yorker, I will entirely deny the truth of that statement. <laughs> but nonetheless, we can battle out the bread, sauce, and cheese later. What's going on in Congress? What, what do we need to know about? What are you working on? And one of the things I would like to talk about, but I suspect is already on your list, is what's going on with immigration. I just saw that Biden has let in a million people, not through legal immigration, through this, uh, you know, the program where <clears throat> you are claiming asylum, but it's it's been so abused that it it's not really an asylum program at all anymore. So I'm I perhaps partially directed your answer, but tell us, you know, what are the things that are, are going on, and talk to us uh, somewhat about uh, immigration. Yeah, well, Robert, the southern border is is a catastrophe. It's it's like pretty much everything else that Biden has touched. Uh, I've told people that if there's anything opposite of the Midas touch, it's what Biden's got. seems like when he gets involved with something, it, it just gets worse. And uh, it's been a few months since I've been to the border, but I never cease to be amazed when I go down there. And, and people are literally just walking across, coming in. Um, border Patrol agents are standing there with a clipboard taking people's names, having them stand in a straight line so they can get on the buses to go be uh, processed. It's it's almost like it's staged. You wouldn't think this is really happening in America, but the numbers don't lie, and it's not just people. It's uh, unbelievable amounts of drugs that are coming across the border. There was a, a seizure yesterday of drugs. Uh, I think they said it was enough fentanyl to kill 40 or 50 million people that they they. Uh, got in one um, one seizure there and think about all of it that, that they catch on the border think about all of it that's coming through the border um, it's it's just a it's a disaster and you know you look at Afghanistan you look at the southern border you look at what's happened with uh, American energy independence you look at what's happened with inflation uh, we're going to see some um, food scarcity globally, and we're going to continue to see food prices rise in the U.S. So we've got plenty, uh, plenty to work on, including the border. Uh, the area that uh, I've been focused on a lot lately has to do with energy, because the uh, committee, one of the committees I serve on, deals with with energy. And I just spent a lot of time uh, on conference calls with my staff back in D.C. yesterday working on some legislation to address the, the energy crisis and we're we should be filing that bill in two or three weeks uh hopefully we'll be in the majority and be able to pass that out of out of my committee um pretty early on in the next congress that's wonderful i i, I saw in the news <clears throat> that the governor of California is telling people, hey, uh, during basically daytime hours, uh, turn your thermostat up above 78 degrees because we don't have enough electricity to handle it. Our grid is insufficient. And it, why is this always happening with the lefties, right? I say that sarcastically because they seem to think that uh, all the energy just grows on trees and you don't have to use any fossil fuels and uh, everybody will be just fine uh, and you don't need to account for actual energy use, meaning it's a sort of pie in the sky. It's the same thing, and maybe we'll have time to talk about, you know, this whole loan forgiveness. It's just like, hey, everybody goes to school for free, and everybody gets free energy, and we're going to have enough of it to go around. But then when you look at the Democrat 
state-run states and cities, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they're not operating well because it's fantasy land. It's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, so, yeah. you know, what do we need to do regarding energy? Uh, Robert, I come from an engineering background, and this frustrates me beyond all measure to see how they, they put these policies in place that are just based, the only kind of science they're based on is political science. <laughs> and, right. You know, they're trying to, um, they, they fail to realize what it takes to actually produce the energy, what it takes, um, the jobs that people have that keep things running. And it's just kind of like, we'll dream up some pie in the sky thing and make that a policy and it's going to be uh, pixie dust and unicorns or something. But they, uh, uh, they, they have no plan that can actually work to address the environment, to address energy, uh, or, or anything else. It's just what's the, the, the fad of the day and how can we uh, message on some um, political point that we want to make. Uh, you know, if we really wanted to address carbon in the atmosphere, we wouldn't be doing it through electric vehicles because that's going to have basically zero effect on reducing carbon in the atmosphere if we were able to change every passenger car in the United States to an electric vehicle overnight and every electron going into that car was coming from a non-carbon source of emissions or of energy, um, you would have less than a 1% impact on, on global carbon emissions. Uh, meanwhile, China is building 38 gigawatts of new coal-fired plants every year. That's one big coal-fired plant a week. So the, the policies have no foundation behind them. What they end up doing is put an, uh, unreasonable burdens on American taxpayers and consumers so Gavin Newsom or whoever can feel good about themselves and, and go have their wine and cheese party, I guess, and make people think they're doing something good. Well, that's exactly right. And, and, and uh, call me a skeptic, but I think it's even worse than that. I think they know it, right? I think they know that it's just moving deck chairs uh, uh, on the Titanic around and that they're not actually achieving anything. And so that's, that's the real tragedy. Let's take a quick break. We'll hold you on the line and we'll come back after these words. This is a Dave Ellswick show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave Ellswick here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We have on the line with us, of course, Congressman Bruce Westerman. Bruce, we got about 10 minutes left, maybe a few seconds or minutes just shy of that. Talk to me, if you will, about this whole so-called debt forgiveness. Of course, even the locution is made up. But... It strikes me, and I had a conversation with French Hill about this a short while ago, that this is really entirely a political move. Now, look, politicians do political things, and one can't be surprised that there's gambling going on in Las Vegas, for example, right? But I see no substance behind this, that this is an attempt to simply pay off loans of a bunch of young folks who will be encouraged to vote for Democrats, and all it does is undermine mm, responsibility and the ability to continue to fund college education, uh, because if there's no underwriting involved, then it, it dries up in the end. Tell me your thoughts on this whole fiasco, if I may call it that. Yeah, fiasco is a, a good word for it, and uh, I, I, I don't know that it will ever happen. First off, I don't think it's 
legal that Joe Biden mm-hmm. can uh, universally just forgive student debt. Even Nancy Pelosi said not too long ago that um, if that were to happen, it would require a law passed by Congress, not an executive action. Uh, I, along with a, about a hundred other members, wrote her a letter to remind her of what she said. Uh, this is something we need to have oversight and uh, and you know call the administration to task on even suggesting that this happened. But I think if challenged in court, I think the administration will be told, no, you can't do this. It's purely political. Look at the timing of it. Look at the demographic that um, that Biden's targeting with this. And, uh, you know, I think they know it's probably never going to happen. And uh, think about the people that they're promising this is going to happen if, uh, if they get the rug pulled out from under them. But... It, it's stuff that you can't dream up, Robert. Indeed. I, I've always thought I had a, a creative um, mind, but if you put me in a room and said, think of the next dumb thing that's going to come out of the Biden administration or from the Democrat Party, I don't know if I could come up with it. Indeed. Well, y- Will the Democrats even, of course, our goal is, and I think there's a good chance that the Republicans will uh, take over the House and perhaps even the Senate, albeit Mitch McConnell's naysaying doesn't particularly help. But nonetheless, um, I I think there's a good chance Republicans will take over the House. Do you think either now when the Democrats are still in charge of the House or for some reason Republicans don't take over the House, that the Democrats would allow hearings on this or do you think they would keep it all under the rug oh i think they'll kick it under the rug yeah. like they've done everything else that this administration has done and that's one of the main reasons we need to win the majority is to have some oversight and to shine a little light and get some transparency on the things this administration is doing because you know the mainstream media is going to cover up for them 100 and even even with Republicans in the majority holding oversight hearings, it'll be interesting to see how much of it actually gets reported. Right. Uh, but uh, that's what, as the uh, the ranking member on the Natural Resources Committee, I've been laying the groundwork, sending letters, requesting information from administration officials, and they just blow it off right now. But if we're in the majority and I get to be the chairman of the committee, I can send the request with a subpoena. And uh, then we get to find out what they've actually been doing and what they're not telling the American people. And uh, you you were talking about the border earlier. Uh, We've requested information from DHS, and they they don't share the information. We don't know how much money they're spending on these uh, illegal migrants that are coming in. We don't. I I know personally. I've seen them getting on uh, uh, commercial airlines. Uh, being flown to different places around the country, and they don't share any of that information. And uh, they're going to have to start answering for their actions if Republicans get the majority in the House come November. You're exactly right, of course, Congressman. And, you know, I, I personally find frustrating this notion that irrespective of party, I'm going to be nonpartisan or bipartisan or whatever you want to call it just for a moment, and I hope to be so even more more so than that, in that when, when there is a party in power in the presidency and the same party controls one or both houses of Congress, there seems to be not enough, Republican or Democrat, by the way, 
where the Congress holds oversight hearings. It doesn't have to be uh, um, adversarial per se. It doesn't have to be accusatory. But Congress has a role in providing oversight because, of course, Congress funds the programs. That's the the connection. It's not just Congress ain't the boss of the president no more than the president is the boss of Congress. But through checks and balances, Congress funds everything, including you know, supposedly the debt forgiveness, and that's why you are correct, I believe, that this ain't this debt forgiveness for student loans ain't going to hold water when it makes it to the courts, and it'll make it to the courts at some point. But I'm, I'm frustrated when I don't see oversight hearings, irrespective of party, uh, when the party in power in the presidency is the same party in power in Congress. And there are exceptions to that notion. But... You can do it. You can be friendly and say, listen, we're doing our job and you do your job. And so a little uh, sort of encouragement uh, by me. Now, it's not going to be an issue uh, now because you're a Republican and hopefully you will take over. Uh, the, the Republicans will take over control of Congress and we still have a Democratic president for another two years. But. When we elect a Dem- uh, excuse me a Republican president thereafter, and hopefully Congress will be Republican, let's still have some oversight hearings. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Right. And you know, I'm thinking back during the Trump administration, and it was still Democrats in control in the in the House, and they had an oversight hearing. They had a lot of oversight. Indeed. Then, and I know that some information had been requested from the administration and it came over to our committee and it was it was terrible it was like 2,000 pages and there would be a couple of words on one page and blank pages and you could make absolutely no sense out of what the uh the bureaucrat they thought they were being cute but you know in a bipartisan manner we told them that was unacceptable and uh, they had to go back and get the information um, in the correct uh, format so we could actually read it. So they do that. Um, you know, I guess the, some administrations think that Republicans are going to protect them if they're Republican administration or Democrats will protect them if they're Democrat administration. But a lot of these bureaucrats in the lower levels in the administration, they're, they're mostly Democrats. But uh, they're going to be there where it's a Republican administration or Democratic administration. So, and they're the ones causing the problem. So, exercise that power. If we could be a first for the people, if we would do that, and I, I agree, it's neglecting a, a duty that we have as members of Congress when we don't have rigorous oversight hearings and take the party politics out of it. Indeed, and, it, and it's wonderful to hear, as you aptly describe, that, for example, during the Trump administration, when some bureaucrat didn't do what they were supposed to do, and as you point out, maybe they're mostly Democrats, but I think even more so than that, they're mostly bureaucrats, right? Like, that's its own mindset. And these bureaucrats are not responding to inquiries. Well, then you got to, you know, put the pressure on and say, uh, no, no, we really meant that question. And as you know, I uh, deal in Arkansas Uh, with the Freedom of Information Act, and I believe in transparency. And so this is part of it, right? Oversight is part of transparency for the people. So it not only serves your needs, but it serves the people's needs. And indeed, that's what you do as a public servant. 
You're serving the people. Uh, and you do that very well. And I hear the music playing in my head, and of course it's either that I'm having a stroke or more likely, at least in this instance, that we have run out of time. So Bruce, Congressman, it's such a wonderful uh, time to talk with you. It's never enough time to talk with you. Uh, so thank you for joining us here on 101.1 FM, The Answer and The Dave Ellswick Show, and we look forward to talking with you again uh, on this station. In the meantime, when you go back to D.C., be sure to let the folks know that uh, a change is coming, and we look forward to a Republican Congress that will offer some oversight over this runaway Democrat administration. Thank you for joining us. the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We are in the last hour of the Dave Ellswick Show, this rather curious schedule of, what is it, 6 to 8, and then there's a break, and 9 to 10, and maybe they'll get that straightened out at some point in the future, I don't know. But for now, that's our schedule, and you're continuing to listen in, and I know you are, because you wouldn't be hearing my voice if you were not. Folks, we always have a lot to talk about. The Dave Ellswick Show is a wealth of information. Notwithstanding his absence, I try to do my best. We have talked quite a bit about how the left has adopted a Marxist philosophy, but instead of economics slash class, they've largely replaced it with race. In other words, to the leftists, everything's about race. Everything. There is no truth. There is no false. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no merit. There is no individual responsibility. Excuse me, responsibility. It's all about race. And this is, first of all, it's wrong. And second of all, it will, if adopted fully, it has been adopted somewhat, if adopted fully, will lead to the demise of our standing across the world. I mean, countries are laughing at us already for what we do, right? We're fighting over whether or not someone born a biological male uh, should be swimming in a female um, swim competition, national level competition. You know, and they're learning math and science, etc., So there was a refreshing column in the New York Times. They posted a series of columns from a variety of commenters, both left and right. And while I often read to you sections of articles from the New York Times to critique them, I'm going to spare you that somewhat painful yet instructive process here. Rather, I'm going to present to you a column from someone who I don't think is actually conservative, but nonetheless espouses conservative values in the area in which she writes. And why? 
Because you know what they say about conservatives. Conservatives are liberals who got mugged. Meaning, conservatives are people who woke up. It's kind of ironic, given that the left calls themselves woke. They may be woke, but we woke up. Conservatives are woke up. You see what goes on around you in the real world, not the ivory towers of academia. And by the way, I work in the ivory towers of academia, metaphorically, and I've got degrees from the ivy-covered ivory towers of academia, several of them. So I don't eschew those environments, but I understand the disconnect between them and reality. Does that mean they're worthless? No. It means you have to bridge the academic to the practical, the academic to the real world. It is a foundation. But if not, then exposed to the real world. If you don't have the intersection of the philosophical and theoretical on the one hand and the practical on the other hand, well, you have nothing. But if you do have the intersection, then you have perhaps everything. So here's this piece uh, written by a woman by the name of um, Asra Nomani. Uh, Ms. Nomani is a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Network and a co-founder of the Coalition for TJ, a group working to promote high admission standards at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, a magnet school in Alexandria, Virginia. In 1982, a 5'0 teen at Morgantown High School in the foothills of West Virginia Appalachians as one, I step forward, says the author, uh, at our annual sports award ceremony to claim an honor, a female athlete with the highest GPA. A boy named Michael Rowe, who won the male athlete award, towered over me at six foot six. He's been my, he had been my academic rival since middle school. But on this day, we both smiled. We both ascended based on hard work and merit. Hard work and merit. Hard work and merit. Two terms that the left eschews. It was America's public school system and its culture of meritocracy, not mediocrity, meritocracy, that allowed me, says the author, an immigrant girl from India who arrived at age four, not knowing a word of English, to become a reporter for the Wall Street Journal at age 23. But now, as my high school classmates and I mark 40 years since graduation, a war on merit is raging. Let me, let me comment, folks. Indeed, she is right. A war on merit is raging. Every time you hear or read one of these uh, pseudo-intellectual, often academic commenters say, well, well, you see, the test is biased, so we must eliminate the test. There's two things wrong with that statement. Both things. Most, virtually all modern tests are not biased, so the claim that they're biased is simply false, and therefore, the conclusion that the test must be eliminated is equally wrong. That's the problem with the left right now. They attack the facts, and they draw, therefore, the wrong conclusion. What is their claim, by the way? What's the claim of the left as to why these so-called biased tests are indeed biased? They're not. Well, you see, because different groups, on average, perform differently on those tests. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, as you know, I often 
I'm on the radio uh, with my professional colleague, uh, Chris Corbett, my law partner, Chris Corbett. So if the Steinbuck family and the Corbett family got together and played a round of golf, the Corbett family would do much, much better. In large measure, simply because of one person, Chris, is a very good golfer. Nobody in the Steinbuck family is a good golfer. I'm not sure about anybody else in the Corbett family. But just takes one. Chris is a very good golfer. So the outcomes would be consistently favored towards the Corbett family. Biased? Is golf biased towards Corbett's over Steinbach's? Or is Chris just better at golf than the rest of us? Right? So that's the problem with this leftist claptrap nonsense. Well, you say the test is biased because not everybody performs the same. That's what tests do. Tests differentiate. That's what they do. And there's no reason to assume that in differentiating, somehow each group on average has to come out the same when we know each group lives in different environments, has different upbringing, etc., etc. But yet the outcome, well, the outcome's possible. No, it's not. No, it's not. Let's get back to the article. Let's see, where was I? Uh, Merit demands excellence and rigor. It is not, as critics often insist, an elitist, classist, or racist value. That's so important to note, folks, by the way. It acknowledges that all kids have talents, even even though talents are not distributed equally. It's our obligation as parents and teachers to nurture each child's individual spark and make sure that all children have the chance to be the best they can be. I learned this on the Morgantown High volleyball team. I was never going to make the Olympic team, but Coach Rice encouraged me to understand that the most valiant, healthy challenge is a personal one, to strive to do and be my best. Merit should have never become a battlefront in the cultural wars. Stepping out of the article for a moment. Yeah, yeah, it has, right? That's what we just talked about. Merit for the left is looked down upon. Ironically, you know, I work in academia and I meet academics, of course, at my institution, at other institutions. And I can't tell you how often I've heard, well, you see the, you know, the law school admissions test, that's a test, it's biased. You can't, because the outcomes are different. So you can't, you can't offer those tests. You just have to have uh, um, sort of admissions based on sticking our fingers in the air and feeling which way the wind blows. Oh, really? Oh, that's an interesting hypothesis, I would say. Tell me, are, are you an academic? Oh, yes, oh, oh, so I'm an academic. Oh, well, um, uh, do you uh, give exams in, in your class? Oh, yes, of course. I, in my class, I have to give exams. We're required to give an exam, a final exam, after all, you know, and maybe a midterm, even. Oh, okay. Are your exams uh, biased? Oh, no, no, my exams wouldn't be biased. No, no. Oh, uh, you somehow divinely inspired? Like, well, divinely inspired? I don't believe in God after all, says, you know, the leftist academic. Well, how is it that your exams aren't biased, but all the other exams are? Isn't that convenient? Right? But this is the hypocrisy of the left. You know, people say, well, you got to dig down. You don't got to dig down. You just need to scratch on the surface. That's all you do is scratch on the surface. And that'll be enough to expose the overwhelming hypocrisy of the left. The author says, I understand the impulse to declare a system rigged when so many children, particularly black and Hispanic children, have fallen behind academically. But the answer to racial disparities in math and reading scores and advanced academic enrollment is not, is not 
to blame the game and re-rig it to favor outcomes that please certain political constituencies, but do little to make life better for struggling children. Folks, I'm going to pick up with this piece after we take these few words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We were talking before the break about a nice article written in the New York Times, an opinion piece by someone who's espousing conservative values, albeit I suspect strongly she is not a conservative and doesn't vote Republican. I don't know for sure, but I, I, my bet is that. Why? Because as I said before the break, you'll be surprised how when people get burned by leftist ideology, all of a sudden they t- turn to conservative thought. So I'm going to repeat a few words just to get back into the paragraph that I was reading to you so we can have this ongoing discussion. The article continues. Merit should have never become a battlefront in the culture wars. I understand the impulse to declare the system rigged when so many children, particularly black and Hispanic children, have fallen behind academically. But the answer to racial disparities in math and reading scores and advanced academic enrollment is not to blame the game and re-rig it to favor outcomes that please certain political constituencies, but do little to make life better for struggling children. The solution is to channel more resources into disenfranchised communities from the black urban poor to the white rural rural poor in West Virginia, where I grew up. The solution is not to give up on merit. I had done a study of of the law school in which I teach, of my law school, and it showed significant differences in incoming test scores and GPAs, undergraduate GPAs, for minority group versus whites. And guess what? No surprise, the bar failure rate for the incoming minority group was double that for whites for the first time that they took the bar exam. Double. Double the failure rate. Point being is, when you think you're doing these minority groups a favor, by taking their money, by the way, and allowing them to enroll, if nearly half of them fail the bar the first time around, who are you doing a favor for? You're doing a favor for them, or you're doing a favor for yourself when you collect their tuition dollars. Here's a deal. If you admit someone in the bottom quartile, the bottom 25% of scores, tell them that they're being admitted notwithstanding they're in the bottom quartile of scores, and tell them this, if you don't pass the bar, we give you your money back. You'll see how quickly schools change their tune. Why? Because they don't want to pay for the leftist policies. They just want to spew them around and make other people pay for them. Right? Who are the other people that pay for them? The students, first of all, who enroll, pay tuition, and don't pass the bar. They're the first people to pay for them. The citizens of Arkansas who pay for, uh, who underwrite higher education. What do you think? All the money that the universities get come from tuition? Nonsense. There's funding from the legislature. So you're paying for that. That's a second source that pays for it. The legal community. Because even though we graduate Um, say, 150 students a year at the school that I teach at and the Fayetteville School. I don't know. I think there are are slightly fewer students they graduate because they don't have a night school 
and they don't over-enroll the day class like we've been doing for the last several years. Uh, so, you know, say just shy of 300 uh, new lawyers each year, um, but if a, if a good portion of them, or at least a significant portion of them, don't pass the bar, well, then they're not lawyers, right? So there's another cost associated. By the way, if you, if you go to law school, go all the way through, forget about if you drop out, go all the way through, and then you don't pass the bar, uh, that's a significant deficit, I mean, and that, that's a harm. You feel that. You know, you spent tens of thousands of dollars to go to law school. During that time, you may not have been working, certainly not working, or may not have been working full-time. I, say, I had said certainly, but we have a night school for people who do work full-time, so it depends. And then you try to go into this profession and you don't pass the bar. Now, you can take the bar more than once, and of those who fail, they have a, a high re-failure rate, but it's not 100%, so people wind up passing the bar even if they failed it. Some people wind up passing the bar <clears throat> even if they uh, failed the first time around. But all around, this is a bad outcome. So let's continue with the article. To be sure, pursuing merit requires sacrifice. At 37, I became a single mother, leaving the journal, the Wall Street Journal, I think, uh, so I could work at home and focus my energy on raising and educating my son. I sat cross-legged on the carpet at my son's elementary school in Fairfax County, Virginia, reading aloud as a volunteer for for book cafe. <clears throat> I coached his Lego League team. I didn't know there was such a thing, by the way. And cheered his classmates during the annual spelling bee. Skilled at math and science, my son was admitted to a magnet school based on race-blind, merit-based admissions tests. Which is what we used to do, right? The reason we have a civil service... Uh, this is me speaking, but... The reason we have a civil service exam, if you want to work for the government, is because too, there was too, many crony, too much cronyism going on. So they said, well, you know what? Let's put an exam in, and then Joe's uncle can't get him a job because he's got to pass the exam. Now, well, we can't have exams. So what do you go back to? You go back to Joe's uncle getting him a job. Going back to the article... Uh, skill alone didn't get him there. He worked hard at geometry, even when, like most kids, he would have rather been conquering Super Mario Galaxy 2. Is that a thing? I don't know. Merit also requires vigilance. In 2020, our school board announced it was eliminating the school's entrance exam and adopting new admission requirements in an effort to increase diversity of the student body. There it is, folks. There it is. Well, we weren't getting the right diversity, so what do you do? You do away with the test rather than address the problem. If you don't have enough diversity, that means that you're not addressing the problems in whatever community is not producing the outcomes that you want to see. But if you do away the test, you haven't changed the outcomes. You've just hidden it. You see, folks, it's this kind of logic. If, if you've got a pain in the side, don't go to the doctor because then you won't know it's cancer. Right? If the doctor don't tell you it's cancer, it ain't cancer. It's healthy, 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 dead. Right? Never had cancer. Healthy, 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 dead. Or you do the test and you find out that it's cancer. By the way, it may not be cancer. But you find out that it's cancer and you treat it. And many people who treat cancer live. Some don't. But that's what this is. They're doing away with the test because they don't want to see the cancer. 
they're blaming the test. Well, that test showed that I have cancer. So the test is evil. It's racist. By the way, the test that shows um, sickle cell anemia, which is a blood disorder that uh, is mostly found amongst African Americans because it's genetic. Well, I guess that test is racist because it says African Americans, for the most part, have that disease. So that's a racist test, right? Wrong. And obviously wrong. This is the kind of leftist claptrap that we are constantly inundated with. You know how exhausting it is to be someone who, who views himself as an educator? I try to teach people things. But I've got to get past all of this chaff even to get to the wheat of basic education. It's exhausting. Um, picking up on the article. No one argued against such a basic noble goal, but many of us, that is diversity, but many of us had plenty to say about the method. It crushed the kids who had worked hard and sacrificed so much to gain entrance to the school based on merit. I was part of a group, including parents, students, and alumni that sued to reinstate merit-based race-blind admissions. Remember when that was the goal? Merit, not race. Merit, not race. What do we have now? Race, not merit. Race, not merit. We have literally turned this notion on its head. This is the travesty of the left, and it makes the world laugh at us. We're going to go to a break in a moment, folks, but I want you to think about that. Think about that closely as we go to these words now. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Folks, we're discussing this article by a woman who had her child in school and is pushing back against this anti-merit approach that the leftists have adopted. And here's a critical sentence, the next part of this article. She says, federal judge ruled this year that the changes to the admissions requirements, those are the ones that... Um, I'm stepping out of the article for a moment. Those are the ones that I mentioned before the break, basically eliminating merit. Back to the article. Were patently unconstitutional and discriminatory to Asian American kids. And were discriminatory to Asian American kids. Why is that phrase important? Why is that clause important? It's important because... For so long, the claim, well, you see, these exams are racist because of black and brown and yellow students, meaning, or another phrase that the left uses, I, I don't care what color spectrum they want to use, but the left says, or people of color uh, are, are discriminated against. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Asian Americans are, um, are, in this case, Indian American. Uh, could be Pakistani American, could be Chinese American, Japanese American, Laotian American. I mean, the, uh, I don't know all the countries off the top of my head. But the point is, those are people of color. And they're the ones being, oh, well, you see, it's, it's, it's all part of the establishment white dominance. Mm, they're not white dominance, are they? No. But they're the ones being discriminated against, more so than whites, I got to tell you. If you're uh, got a, if you have a student in school and and your student your child 
likely like you uh, is white, meaning if the child's white, it's probably because you're white, right? <laughs> Unless the child is adopted. Um, that student may or may not be discriminated against in, say, applying to college. But if your child uh, has good standing in school and does well on exams and applies to college and is Asian American, is Pakistani American, Indian American, Chinese American, etc., much greater chance that that student will be discriminated against. How does the left's racial focus fall apart when you actually examine the evidence? What goes on with these race-based preference programs pitches one minority against another? The whites are largely not involved. They're not entirely absent, but they're a good portion not involved. And it's one racial group saying, we deserve your seats to another racial group. And guess what? This mother here, who worked hard herself and whose kid worked very hard himself, uh, is pushing back. Did you know, it's something like the, um, this is not the correct number, but it's like a dozen, the last dozen years, the winner of the National Spelling Bee and maybe there's an exception in this, but it's roughly correct, is an Indian American. Is an Indian American. It might be Indian American or Pakistani American. I'm not sure. Um, uh, By the way, India and Pakistan were once one country, and then it was colonized by Britain and then split up after the decolonization process, and it's just a, a tragedy. It was once one wonderful country, and now it's two, as far as I can tell, fine countries, but split up as a function of colonization. It's really unfortunate. And they come from a common background, different religion. The, the split is largely along religious lines, uh, but they come from a common people. And so I don't know if it's just Indian or Indian and Pakistani, but the last dozen or so winners are Indian American. Now, do you think somehow Indians have a special tool in their brain that allows them to spell better than others? I don't think so. No. I think that in Indian households in America, there has been developed... Uh, a culture of education, but in addition, there's this affinity towards pursuing the spelling bee. Good. Why not? Okay. Sure. When I was a kid, there was no, in my household, and I grew up in a culture of education, but there was never any focus on spelling. Oh. But this seems to be at least somewhat prevalent in some portion of Indian American communities. At least enough of that portion to create this disproportionate outcome. Uh-oh, disproportionate outcome. So do these people, should they be, oh no, well, we've had too many Indians, uh, Indian Americans, um, uh, win that uh, competition. Uh, we've got to do something. We've got to change it. That, that, that spelling bee is biased. It's racist. There are no whites. There are no African Americans. There are no uh, etc. winning in the last dozen or so years. Or certainly even if one may have, not at the right proportions relative to the representation in the population. Or, here's a crazy idea, folks. Or, 
those fo- those kids that won the competition did so because they won. They they won the competition because they spelled more words correctly than their opponents. Is that racist? Is it racist to award them the top spot in the spelling bee because, well, after all, they were the best at spelling? Well, it doesn't strike me as racist. But the outcome does not, has not historically followed racial distributions in this country. How can that be, folks, I say, with all the sarcasm, with my tongue firmly implanted in my cheek, there's a phrase, tongue-in-cheek, meaning sarcasm. How can that be? Well, because guess what? Different groups pursue different ends at different rates and produce different outcomes as a consequence. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. When I grew up in my household, my parents inculcated in us the virtue of going to college. Let me be clear, folks. It's not the only pursuit, and it's not the the best pursuit or the worst pursuit. It is one of a variety of good possibilities. But my family, my parents emphasized that one over others. Over others. I think I could have been a good auto mechanic. I could have been a good plumber. I mean that sincerely. But that was never presented, at least from my parents, as an option. Yeah, I had some modest exposure to it through its availability at school, auto mechanics that is. I don't, we didn't have any program on plumbing. But it was something I never pursued. Now, I'm not disgruntled about that fact. I'm perfectly satisfied where I wound up. But... I think if I had pursued those careers, I, I would have found them interesting too. I tend to find interest in most of the things that I do and have done. But, so let's say there are a lot of families like mine that fit my demographic profile. Well, then we would have a disproportionate number of students, of children, who go to college rather than trades. Is that unfair? It just is folks it just is not every difference is racism not every difference is discrimination but to the left it is to the left it is i'm going to continue with this article unfortunately these misguided policies that is putting race above merit are spreading across the education landscape in California and Virginia school districts are moving to decrease the number of D and F grades doled out and putting in place quote equitable grading end quote like making 50 instead of a zero the lowest grade a student can receive and allowing missed deadlines in new quote reasonable late work policy guidelines school districts in other parts of the country are eliminating academically advanced programs advanced placement classes, and valid Victorian honors. Isn't that something else? Isn't that something else? You can't say who graduated first. There is no first. Everybody gets a participation prize. This race to the bottom doesn't help the young people it sets out to uplift, including students with learning disabilities, people facing socioeconomic challenges, and new English language learners. Finally, merit is contagious. During my time at the Journal, the paper won many Pulitzer Prizes. 
I took enormous pride in the achievements of my peers, and they inspired me to pursue excellence in my own work at the Journal, and now as an advocate for young people. Michael, my fellow award-winning classmate, went on to be a a mechanical and aerospace engineer and Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya. He then became a math and physics teacher at our crosstown rival, University High School. Last year, he won the Yale Educator Award. Merritt has gone full circle in the most noble of ways, in service of our youth. There's a reason, folks, that we're not at the top of the world when it comes to education. Here we're, we're 36, 28, I don't know what the number is. But why aren't we at the top? We're the richest nation. We have the most resources in terms of education. We have uh, the most brilliant minds in the world. I believe we have like the most Nobel uh, science awards, not the Peace Prize, but the actual substantive awards. Yet we're not nearly at the top of education. I want you to think about that as we take this break, and we'll be back in a moment. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this morning here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We've only got about 10 more minutes left in the show, folks. It's been a wonderful morning, and it's been a pleasure to be with you, and I'd like to thank Dave and 101.1 FM, The Answer, for having me on. There's a piece in The Federalist uh, that talks about this question that I presented earlier in the show. That is, how does Hillary's actions align with what's going on now with Trump and the materials that he took away from uh, the White House. Now, part of the problem in doing this comparison, I got a call from, oh, Dan Abrams, the Dan Abrams show. I don't even know what that's on. Um, but he's, his father uh, was a well-known First Amendment attorney, and Dan Abrams has done a bunch of different television shows, some good, some not so good. He's a lefty, don't get me wrong, and they said, well, we want you to come in and debate uh, the differences between Trump and uh, Hillary, uh, but we, you need to take a position different from Dan to have a debate. And that's fine. I mean, in other words, we want to know what you're going to say generally about this topic. I only got the email after the show was over, so I wasn't able to go on. I would have gone on happily. But basically what Dan Abrams was trying to set up was the fact that, well, you know, you conservatives are hypocrites. You criticized Hillary, and you're not criticizing Trump. Well, no. At least not for me. Not for me. First of all, early on, uh, during the Hillary debacle, I criticized her. Remember, I'm the guy that wrote the book. Uh, co-wrote the book and now the, wrote the, the new version on my own on the Freedom of Information Act here in Arkansas. So I'm all about transparency and Hillary was destroying emails uh, in an effort to avoid transparency. Now, none of that is at issue with Trump at all. Uh, much of what she did by having a private server stuffed in her basement uh, and using it for official government business uh, without seemingly any oversight whatsoever uh, was for the purpose of screening uh, emails and then deleting them so that there would be a lack of transparency. That's not what happened here with Trump. So that's the first difference. But I also said that uh, I didn't, I initially said, I remember it was on Dave's show, in fact, I said, I'm not sure if what she did violated the law. And then someone pointed out a separate law, and I can't remember which it was now. I'll have to go back and see if I can reconstruct that, uh, that she maybe did violate the law in the end. And so I started off not thinking she violated the law and then came to the conclusion that she probably did violate the law. Uh, 
So he said, well, what about Trump if you said that she violated law? Why didn't Trump violate Well, first of all, we don't know yet. Right? That's the thing. I haven't said he definitely hasn't violated law. I said we don't know yet. He, uh, th- there are two issues here. Whether he violated the secrecy classifications of various documents. Now, the thing is, the president has complete authority over that. Now, I don't know the process. I don't know if he had to file something, write something, or simply state it uh, to make something no longer secret. The Secretary of State does not have complete authority. Has some authority, to be sure, uh, but it's not complete. So there's one distinction already. And we don't know what Trump did. And and Hillary, to the best of my knowledge, never claimed that she made uh, not secret otherwise secret documents. In fact, if I have time, I'll read to you from this piece in which Hillary again claims that there was there were no secret documents. But we know that as a fact, not to be true. And we know it also that there are documents that uh, Trump had that were stamped secret, etc. The question is whether he made them unsecret. She claims she didn't have any, have any secret documents. She never claimed that she made them unsecret. So there's a second distinction. And then the second law or group of laws that might apply are these laws that don't rely on classification. They rely on whether the individual has somehow disclosed information that could undermine the security of the United States, words to that effect. And I don't remember if that was at play uh, with Hillary, uh, but they're alleging that regarding Trump. Well, I don't know what's in the documents. So I don't know if having these documents locked up in a basement undermines the security of the United States or not. It could. It's possible. So I can't answer whether or not there were any laws violated. I can tell you that the process doesn't look good. Unlike what went on, Hillary didn't have a, a, a swarm of SWAT folks show up to her house, right? She did this all on her own time and her own leisure after she destroyed 30,000 emails. She was allowed to destroy 30,000 emails and then decide what to turn over to the federal government. That's a big difference. And so here's this piece. It says, Hillary keeps shamelessly lying about her emails. It's written by David Harsani. And it says, Hillary Clinton lies with reckless with the recklessness of someone who's gotten away with countless acts of corruption in a career. Who can really blame her? Here's, here she is today, and then there's a tweet. I can't believe, says Hillary, we're still talking about this, but my emails. As Trump's problems continue to mount, the right is trying to make this about me again. Oh, there's even a Clinton standard, quote-unquote. The fact is that I had zero emails that were classified. Back, and that's a picture of that and now the article continues none of what Clinton says in her thread is even remotely true Hillary contends that Comey admitted that he was wrong after he claimed I had classified emails even if the former FBI director had changed his mind it would have not mattered once he was out of office but Comey never said such a thing he never said such a thing after scrupulously detailing Hillary's numerous evasions of laws governing the handling of classified information in July of 2016 Comey let the former Secretary of State skate maintaining the FBI couldn't prove intent Clinton he said had merely acted extremely carelessly 
in handling a very sensitive, highly classified information. And the law requires something more than carelessness. That's me talking. Back to the article. Comey didn't charge Hillary probably to save himself the trauma of indicting someone he believed would be the next president. If you truly believe that Hillary, the most qualified candidate ever, had stumbled into a setup, into setting up a secret server that was specifically used to circumvent government transparency. Remember, my issue. Back to the article. You're a gullible fool. Whatever you believe, though, according to the FBI, Clinton sent 110 emails with clearly marked classified information. 36 of those emails contained secret information, and eight of those email chains contained top secret information. And the FBI also found that Hillary should have known many other topics under discussion were classified, even if they weren't marked. Because you don't have to stamp a document for it to be to fall into that category. Quote, back to the article, we assess it is possible that hostile actors gained access to Secretary Clinton's personal email account, Comey explained at the time. The New York Times concurred. That's the thing, right? It's much easier to break into uh, an online computer system kept in Hillary's basement up in Chappaqua. It's probably D.C., but Chappaqua sounds better. Um, Than it is to break into the basement uh, uh, locked room at Mar-a-Lago. Not that that's impossible. Well, folks, I hear the music ringing. And so let me just sum up. How much time I got left? About a minute left. Let me sum up. When people are uh, saying, well, you are being a hypocrite. And I know they're saying it to you in addition to me about what happened with Hillary. Tell them, look, we don't know exactly what happened with Trump yet. But what we do know is the process. the, The swarms of SWAT police showing up is very different than what went on with Hillary. And so I am cautious about saying uh, that uh, they are being treated the same. In fact, I'm not saying they're being treated the same. And I don't think the circumstances as of yet are the same. That doesn't mean that it might not turn out that some action that the president took uh, violates a law. I don't know that to be the case. And I don't know that not to be the case. And that's the critical point here. Um, Hillary, thank goodness, was never president. If, if, if one great thing comes out of all of this analysis, it's the realization that we saved our country from the downward spiral that would have been Hillary. Now, we got Joe Biden this time, but his fecklessness is better than her leftist dogma. Problem with Joe Biden is he's surrounded himself with leftists who have taken over. So hopefully in two years, we'll get a Republican in office. With those words, thank you, everybody, here at 101.1 FM for your graciousness in letting me host the Dave Ellswick Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. 
Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.